you've ever uh, attended any one of uh, many mega churches that are around, you may notice that sometimes mega churches have in their lobby a coffee shop. And um, for various reasons, but I used to uh, ask a friend of mine who was on staff at one of those mega churches, I used to say, aren't you afraid that having a coffee shop in your lobby is going to be uh, giving the public a kind of indication of what they're in for in the sermon? Anyway, um, what I like about is the names. The names that they give these coffee shops in these churches. And my favorite is He Brews. <laughs> you kind of like that too, don't you? I was just looking for a clever and maybe a little bit funny way to help us to remember what we're doing. That right now our sermon series is in the book of what? in the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter three today. Chapter two was a further fleshing out of the theme of chapter one, that Jesus is a better messenger, better helper, better representative of God to us simply because he is what? Not only son of God, but son of man. So a perfect representation of God walking around in a human form. The word became flesh and walked among us. He's better than the prophets because while being human, prophets only have a limited experience with God as he gives them the messages that he gives them. He comes to them in dreams. Sometimes he just interjects their thoughts. Sometimes he just puts words right into their mouth. And that's good, but it isn't what? It isn't ideal, it isn't best. He didn't stop there. He's better than angels because while they have a more supernatural, divine-like being with powers and and, and everything, uh, they simply were not chosen to reach humans with their message. They don't even need his help. That's not why the Son of Man came, he says. And so this is how the last chapter kind of ended Because the first chapter that we look at today in chapter three begins with a therefore. And remember I've told you before, anytime you come into scripture and you see the word therefore, you ask yourself one question, what is that therefore, therefore? So we need to figure out why he said therefore in verse one of chapter three. It says, for it is clear that he did not come to help who? He didn't come to help angels, but he came to help who? The descendants of Abraham, these Hebrews, this is where they come from. The author then introduces a new facet last week. I didn't spend any time on it because we didn't have time and I knew that, hey, for the next five or six chapters, this new facet is going to be the theme of Hebrews. It is truly going to begin to open up this idea of, of, of the human element to the Son of Man. The author introduces this new facet, these former slaves, these wanderers, these alien children of Abraham, and the new facet of revealing him is to compare and contrast to the one human that those Hebrews would find extraordinary. There is one human, one human being that they would find extraordinary. And verse 17 ended this way. Therefore, since he didn't come to help angels, He came to help the descendants of Abraham. He had to become like his brothers and sisters in how many respects? Every respect. So that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make a sacrifice for the atonement of the sins of the people. A faithful high priest. This gets a Hebrew's attention. The high priest is going to get his attention. You're talking about the one human being that they would find extraordinary because of his office. The one human element in the entire system. The tabernacle, this this shadow of the representation of God that the people chose. Did God choose the tabernacle to dwell among them? Is Is this the way he wanted it? an intercessory relationship, an intermediary between him and the people? No, this is what the people chose. See, but God's in charge of it. So something has to be up. The one human element in the entire thing, it well is the priesthood, 
but the one human element in the entire thing that represents what God really wants is the high priest. Because the high priest gets to go places where the other priests do not. Eventually, he gets to walk right into the most holy place and stand in the presence of who? Stand in the presence of God. So the high priest really is the facet that begins to open up this letter to the Hebrews. So because of this, because Jesus came as a faithful high priest, therefore, he says, he and he is the radiance of his glory and the, ex- uh, sorry, got it. There we go, sorry. Therefore, brothers and sisters, holy partners in a heavenly calling, Consider that Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful to all God's house. He mentioned the high priest because in here he knew he was going to open it up. Therefore, he says, the high priest, holy partners, I love how he addresses us now, holy partners in a heavenly calling. Again, we're not, we're not just worshipers. We're not just disciples. We're holy what? We're partners in this. Why? Because he had to have a human partnership. He lived and died to make sure there was a human partnership between us and God. And this is him, a faithful high priest. He was the one who was faithful. Since in Jesus, God became like one of us, not an angel, more than a prophet, more than an angel, that's what makes him faithful to God the Father who appointed him. Paul talks about that. Paul talks about uh, the divinity that Jesus possessed as the Son of God. As Trinitarians, we believe God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. That that divinity that he possessed, uh, Paul says that he didn't seek that as a gift to be grasped. He left it behind. And he condescended to become one of us. That's what makes him faithful as a high priest, is that he was faithful to God in order to become a human. So these couple of terms, high priest and then the other term, he also is called what in this? An apostle also. Jesus is called an apostle. It's a term we don't normally associate with him, we normally associate it to who? The apostles, right? That there were at least 12 of them at the beginning. The disciples became apostles when it came time for them to go give the message because that's what apostolos means in Greek. It means sent with a message. They're not merely followers now. They're now sent with the message. And what is the message? The good news. The good news of what? That God would become one of us? That's pretty good news. At least the angels thought so. I'm not so sure about some church members sometimes. But that's good news. But see here, the author of Hebrews attributes that to Jesus because if you think about it, Jesus is the original apostle. He is the message. He is the message lived out. Again, the gospel isn't something on paper that you read to somebody. The gospel isn't a piece of paper that you hand to somebody. It's not a formula to be figured out. It's not a study to come to a conclusion to. The good news is the word is him. So that would make him an original apostle, right? He brings the message. He lives the message. He is the message. And he's armed with the gospel because he is the gospel, So here Jesus is called that. The good news is is that we've been atoned for by this suffering high priest. There'd be no gospel to deliver had he not been sent with that message first. So the author of Hebrews has no problem calling him an apostle. And it makes him faithful. It makes him faithful. He's faithful because he suffered, found atonement for sin, and and became human in order to do that. He's faithful completely to God, and it makes him faithful compared to who? Compared to Moses. Just as who was faithful? Just as Moses, who was faithful in all God's house. 
Moses was faithful in all God's house, it says. See, if you're looking for someone, if you're writing a letter to the Hebrews and you're looking for someone who they believe is an example who was faithful to God in all things, they would come up with one name. You know what it is? Moses, that's right. Why? Because scripture says so. Exodus 40, 16 says, thus Moses did according to how much? All that the Lord had commanded him, so he what? So he did. See, Exodus chapter 40, it's real interesting, comes at the very end of the entire production of everything that will go into the tabernacle. The cultic system that it provides, the priesthood that will work, everything down to the letter. Uh, it's, it's all been manufactured, if you will. It's all been made. But something I really never noticed before this week, while reading through Exodus in my devotion, is that it was all made by this huge crew of artisans, right? He put uh, Bezalel in charge, but it was a huge crew of artisans. They were woodworkers. They were seamstresses and tanners and dyers, metal workers, all of them in order to put it together. But do you know who actually assembled it and worked it for the first time? Moses, all by himself. It's said here. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was what? Moses set up the tabernacle. He laid its bases, set up its frames, put in the poles, raised its pillars. And if you read this for like the next eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 verses, Moses tells you what the work that he did, everything. He did it all by himself. Has anybody ever seen a life-size replica of the tabernacle? Okay, we had one that we would do in our church every year, and it took about 20 of us to set it up. Moses did it all by himself. He set it up. The ark, he put the, he's in charge of putting the covenant inside it. He's the one who puts the lid on the ark, the mercy seat. He sets up the table of showbread and actually puts the bread on it. He didn't say whether or not he baked it, but I wouldn't be surprised. He sets up the lampstand and sets the lamps. He's the very first one to light the lamps. He set up the altar of incense and he's the first offering of incense on the altar is done by him. He sets up the altar and offers the very first grain and burnt offerings on the altar. He even fills the basin with water himself. He assembles the whole thing. So let me ask you this. Why have a whole crew to build it and leave assembly to this one old man? How long do you think it took? It must have took forever. But if you're asking the question, why have a team build it and have the old man assemble it, every Hebrew knows the answer to that question. Every Hebrew knows the answer. See, we've been to Exodus 19 in our study where the Hebrews decided that they will worship this Hebrew God close, up the mountain, or where? From afar. We've been to Exodus 19, right? They were afraid. So around the middle of chapter 20, God begins to prescribe for them this intercessory relationship that, that, that they think that they want. It's going to take 12 chapters, 12 entire chapters of Exodus, dictating to Moses. At the beginning for a bit, he does it in their hearing. They get to eavesdrop for a couple of chapters. It's real, real interesting that they get to eavesdrop. And when it comes time for actually sacrificing on an actual altar, he tells Moses to bring Aaron and his sons and 70 elders of Israel to come closer. And he instructs them on the actual building and the sacrificing. And actually it's interesting that after they prevent, uh, present the sacrifices, that group he calls a little closer. He brings them a little closer. And then it says that a, they actually got to see God. It's interesting. I don't think they actually got to see him because the only thing they can describe is his feet. 
He says, they got to see God and his feet were like and walking pavement of sapphire. So to me, that's all they got to see. But it's more than they get to see than the others, right? They're still at a distance. After he's all done with it, and he actually, he feeds them. They have a meal there. They presented a, a sacrifice, so now there's food to eat. So these 70 elders, the very first high priest and his sons and Moses, they all get a meal right there in the presence of God's feet. I think that's cool. But then after that, he then calls Moses up the mountain and leaves the rest where they want to be. And for the next eight chapters, he gives Moses the complete instructions for the building, if you will, for the tent, if you will, that we all know as the tabernacle, the sanctuary in the wilderness. He gives them the whole shooting match in eight chapters. You know what he saves for last, what's real interesting? What he saves for last is the priesthood, the specific parts of the tabernacle along with their ongoing role. It's what he saves for last. And the whole time he's telling Moses, this is what you shall do for the people that I've chosen to be the first priests. He keeps mentioning Aaron and his sons. So even on the mountain, even there on the mountain, he already has designated Aaron as the very first high priest, as the very first one. Aaron and his sons. Anybody remember how long it took? I mean, eight chapters we could probably read in 10 to 20 minutes, right? Depending on how, but do we remember how long it took? It took 40 days. 40 days, nothing but Moses the only one who will talk to him face to face, talking about the system, building the system that will allow Israel to not have to talk to him face to face. 40 days it takes. Meanwhile, what's happening with the people? When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, come what? Make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. He disappears for 40 days. The very one that they said, you go talk to God for us. And by the way, what is he doing? He's doing exactly what they told him to do. But 40 days is too long. It's too long. So they're actually asking for what now? Make us gods. We just spent 400 years in a place that made gods every day. For whatever situation they wanted, they would make a god. And it would happen. So come on, man, let's do it. And of course, the man designated as the first high priest says, no, no, don't be wicked, people. Don't, don't do this. Don't do that. I'm the only one here, I'm the holy one here. I'll, 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 hold off, hold off, I'll figure out something else. Don't do this, don't do that. Sin. Is that what, the way that the designated high priest reacts? No, what did he do? Aaron said, sounds good to me. Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it into a mold, cast an image of a calf, and they said, these are our gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So apparently Aaron is a what? He's a metal worker, which means before this job, guess what he was doing? Guess what he spent about a month and a half doing? Constructing what? Well, no, not, not yet. I'm being an anachronistic, I'm sorry. But just think about it. He's a metal worker. What's he going to be doing when Moses comes back down from the mountain? These are your gods. Yikes. It's not a very good look for a high priest, is it? Not a good look at all. No, he didn't even have any backup. Who else was supposed to help him there? His sons, 70 elders, all of them are, are there. They've seen God's feet. 
But apparently, seeing God's feet isn't enough. It's not enough to be able to overcome this type of temptation, to overcome this type of fear. Yes, they fear God. They fear him. They don't even want to talk to him. But guess what they fear more? Dying in the wilderness. That's what they fear more. But you got to wonder, where's his boys? Where's, Where's his 72 boys to back him up? So, I said before, if you're looking for one person faithful, why does the one person have to construct the tabernacle? Because there's one person in Israel that is not present here and will never be tainted with the, uh, with the stain, if you will, of worshiping the golden calf, and that's who? That's Moses. Because May- Moses was faithful in all God's house. Every Hebrew knows this. That's why he constructs it. God has him do it because he's the only one that isn't, that didn't participate in this. He has to be the one to build this house because everyone else is tainted with worshiping another God. Even after that God, this God calls them out of Egypt and delivers them from their slavery and invites them to come up his mountain, to actually come up to his house. So with all of that in mind, though, with all of that in mind, the author of Hebrews is asking them who know the answer to this question, I want you to reconsider Moses' absolute faith. I want you to reconsider it because I got you one better. Yet Jesus is worthy of how much more? More glory than who? Than Moses. Just as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is who? Is God. Moses is greater than the tabernacle because he built it. But who is greater than Moses? God, because he is the actual builder. Have to remember this, and we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks when we uh, begin to truly, when, when, when the author of Hebrews is really going to open up this facet of the high priest. You have to remember what, what Moses built was not original. He was shown what? He was shown a copy of the sanctuary. So like I said, Moses is greater than the tabernacle because he represents the faith that the tabernacle is supposed to illustrate. And he built it. But we're reminded, he didn't build it on his own, did he? For the real builder of the house is who? Is God. As faithful as Moses was in all things concerning, I'll go back to his his, um, erecting it and putting it together and performing the very first service. You have to consider this, that at the end of verse 40, in the end of that entire narrative, this happens. It says, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was walked right in? No, he wasn't able to, was he? He wasn't able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord, what? Filled it. There was no room for Moses. Even though he was faithful to all, everything in God's house, but in the very end, he wasn't allowed to enter God's house. When he was done, he couldn't enter. God's glory keeps them out. That is what the Hebrews author is saying. The glory is the Son. The glory is the faithful high priest. Moses couldn't enter because it was filled with the presence of God, the son of God, the son of man. He is the glory of God. He even tells us in the Gospel of John, I am the light of the world. I'm the Shekinah, I'm the glory. There's someone, something better, even than who? Than Moses. Moses was faithful in all God's house, but as a what? 
as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken about later. Even with all Moses' experience and record of faithfulness, he still serves God as a what? As a servant. He still serves God as a slave, if you will. It's not what God wants in his house. It's not what God wants for these Hebrew children of Abraham. Moses was sent to free them from what? From slavery. He doesn't want slaves in his house. If that were the case, why would he free them from Egypt? These Hebrew children of Abraham, these descendants of Abraham, they need to know something more. They've been living with slavery to Pharaoh and Pharaoh's gods for 400 years. There's got to be something more. And notice, the house that Moses built and served, it has a later testimony. It will testify to the things that would be spoken when? Later. Because later the son is gonna show up. This high priest is going to show up and he's going to walk and he's going to begin to what? He's gonna begin to talk. It has a later testimony. Christ, however, not a servant, was faithful over God's house as a what? As a son. Now we're talking, right? Son of man, son of God, you and I are son of humanity, daughters of humanity, that's us. Here we are. What makes Jesus better is that he was what? Is that he was human. He was all God's glory. The exact radiance of his continents. And we are his house. If we hold firm to the confidence and the pride that belong to what? That belong to hope. This is our hope. Our experience is better than Moses had it. I think Moses wanted more, but he couldn't be given more. Not at the time. Not at the time that the tabernacle was built. Christ, however, was faithful. The difference, again, is the difference between a servant and the son. What is the difference between a servant in a man's house and his son? Is that eventually the son is going to be the what? He's going to be the heir of how many things? Usually all things. It's probably unheard of back then. Unheard of that the father wouldn't give his sons everything. As a matter of fact, the father of the prodigal son gave it to him twice, right? I know today we could have problems with our sons and our daughters and leave them out of our will. And who knows, they probably deserve it. I know, I get it. But the difference between a servant and an heir and the son is that the son will become an heir. See, there was a Hebrew another Hebrew slave who took this journey from slave to son, and he put it this way, as he was writing to a bunch of Gentiles, trying to explain this relationship to a bunch of Gentiles in a church gathering in a town called Galatia. He said, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's sons, heirs according to the promise. My point is this, Heirs, as long as they are minors, are no better than slaves. Though they are the owners of all property, they remain under guardians and trustees until the date set by the father. So with us, while we were minors, we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a child. Amen. And if a child, then also an heir through God. Christ's faithfulness was as a son, the heir of the completeness, the exact radiance of the father. The heir gets all the house. 
Hebrews put their limited experience in Moses' faithfulness and in what they believe is God's house, the tabernacle. But the author is calling them to something so much more. The builder is saying, you got something more in Christ. Don't settle for Moses' faithfulness. Don't settle for the shadow, which is the tabernacle. Settle for Jesus and nothing less. See, back in the midst of this story and the horrid messiness of the golden calf, something happens that I think should give everybody, I guess, a clue or to open up what the author of Hebrews is really trying to say. See, when Moses comes down the mountain with them worshiping the golden calf, does he take it very calmly? No, he loses it, doesn't he? He flat out loses it. He smashes the covenant, that thing written with God's own hand. He burns the calf and he grinds it up into dust. He puts it into water and he makes every person in Israel drink it. Anybody ever had their wash, their, 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 wash, their mouth washed out with soap? This is his version of it. And then it gets worse. It's not funny anymore. He orders the Levites to begin to start killing people, butchering people. And as far as we can tell, 3,000 men slaughtered and butchered that day. In fact, there wasn't a tribe or a family member that didn't lose a father, a son, or a brother. It's a mess, isn't it? Can you imagine what it looked like the next morning? You all come out, if they slept at all that night, can you imagine what the camp looked like that next morning? And there's this verse that, that Moses says. He says this, and it sounds like something if you hear it through a particular set of ears. But Moses said, today you've ordained yourself. You've ordained yourself. You've set yourself apart for, this, for a service. Service of who? Service of the Lord. Y'all thought, y'all believed that you were serving God yesterday because I'm the one that told you that you were. Serving God by murdering the people that were worshiping the golden calf. He goes, today you've done this. You now serve who? Each one at the cost of a what? Every one of you lost a son, lost a brother, and so have brought a blessing on yourselves this day. Now you can read this two ways. You can read this two ways. You could, you could actually think that Moses is actually commending them for what they did, that they stood up for God at a particular time. Forget the fact that before he called them to do it, they were worshiping the calf too. So why is it that they got to live and others got to die? See, that's why I don't think this sounds the way it sounds. And he says, and now you've brought yourself a blessing. You know what he's really saying? Look around you. You guys are ankle deep in your brother's and your father's blood. Do you feel blessed? And he's reminding them that when they sinned in Egypt against the gods, this is what was waiting for them. Do you feel blessed? Is this a blessing? Is this who you want to continue to serve? But what's their answer? What do they got? Do they have anywhere else to go? No. All they have is who? That guy standing right in front of us. And the next day, he comes up with something crazy. He lets them sleep on it again. And the next day, it says the Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great what? a great sin, and now I'm going up to the Lord. And the crazy part is that he says, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? Not so crazy. Who's the only one that didn't worship the golden calf? It's him. So in Egypt, this would work out, right? People do some bad things, find somebody who didn't do bad things, and do what? I don't know, <laughs> somehow even out the scales? You have to remember that without Jesus, that's all we're left with, right? 
When, when, when Paul says that you are left in your sins, you've got, you've got two things you can do. First of all, quit sinning. Does that work? Does that work when I stand here before you and say, well, quit sinning, just quit it, just stop. And after you quit sinning, then start doing a bunch of good things to begin to equal out the scales. And maybe, just maybe, if you do a good enough job, God will forgive you. Is that who you want to continue to serve? But that's how pagan gods treat their worshipers. Do something good, balance it out. See, but he says, I think I can go make atonement. But what's interesting is that he doesn't go up there and do what you think that you and I think he's going to do. He isn't gonna go up there and say, you know what, um, I'm, uh, I'm the only one who didn't do it. I'm, I'm still good, right? I'm, I'm your good boy, okay? The good boy, the good boy is here. And he doesn't even do what we think that he did is in that maybe he offered himself, that maybe he would die. No, he didn't even do that. He does this. He says, but if you will what? If you will forgive their sin. The crazy thing that he told Israel was, maybe I can just ask. Maybe I can just ask. And then he does something really interesting too. He says, if you won't, I get it if you won't, but if you won't, then you gotta kill me too because I've been serving gods like that in Egypt and I just cannot handle that you're just like them. I've been spending all this time with you and there's something about you that moved me that felt that maybe you were merciful enough to ask to forgive their sin as horrible as it was. And the father actually, knowing what he's going to do, knowing that one day he would send his son so they could be forgiven, guess what he says? He says, okay. He doesn't come right out and say it because he can't yet. You know why? You know why he can't come right out and say, I forgive your sin? Because the price hasn't been paid yet. Jesus hasn't come yet. See, the son of man comes to live and die for how many people's sins? Even the people that died before he got here? Yes, Paul says that. If Jesus doesn't come, even Moses won't be resurrected. You with me? So he can't come right out and say it, but what he does say this, he says, he tells Moses, go back down and lead your people. That's almost as good, isn't it? Because what do they deserve right now? Right? What do they think they're going to get? Can you imagine that? Moses goes up and we look at each other going, did he just really say what he thought he said? He's gonna go up and, and, and do some crazy thing to ask if they could forgive our sin? Look at this, who can forgive this? And then when Moses does come back down, he says, pack up guys, we're ready to go. Just notice that out of all of Israel, the only one that has been living with him face to face is the only one that can come up with the crazy idea that maybe, just maybe, God would forgive if we ask him. See, there's the difference between a servant and a son. He says, go lead your people. And at first, it's funny, at first he says, I'm gonna send an angel in front of you. That's not good enough for Moses. Moses stops and he goes, what? And, and I, you know, I used to, I, I used to think it was just, it was, it was so amazing that, that he just promised that he could still have it. He promised that he could still go. It's just that I don't want to go with him anymore. It's kind of like a dad who's been cooped up in the car on a vacation long enough with his kids where he says, you know what? I just, I, I can't do it. I'm afraid if I drive another mile, I'm going to kill these kids. That's kind of what he tells him. I said, I've, I've, I've had it. Okay. You know, and if it were anybody else, Moses would go, let me see, still get the land of milk and honey. I won't have him looking over my shoulder. See ya. But Moses stops and turns around and says, you know, I, I can't go without you. I'm not gonna go without you. You gotta go with me. 
So Moses said, uh, so God says, okay. And then it's almost like Moses didn't believe him or didn't hear him because two verses later he asked him again and God actually asked him, so I said I would go with you. Now go down and get him ready. He says, go. I will be present. And then he tells him exactly how he will be present. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then he would return to the camp. He would speak to Moses. Notice he didn't say, my presence will be the tabernacle. My presence will be uh, me in that little room and only Aaron gets to see me once a day, one, one day out of the year. He says, no, my presence will be with the one who will sit with me face to face. See, with one condition, though. See, I think that when Moses heard this, he was ecstatic, and I think he got all fired up, and he got all moved, because a little later, he, he, he just lets loose, and he says, I'll do the very thing that you've asked, for you've found favor in my sight. I know you by name. Moses gets excited and says, show me your glory. This is so cool. I want to see it all now. Do you think that when he went up the mountain, walking out of that blood and mess that he actually was going to get this when he got there? Show me your glory. Show me it all. And what did God say? Do you remember what God said? He said, sure, I will pass by you. But, but, I don't know what's going on with my, he said, you can't what? can't see my face, for no one shall see me and live. The only reason he has to withhold from showing him his face is because, like I said, the son and the faithful high priest hasn't come yet. By the way, in a couple thousand years, Moses is going to get his wish because God will actually send him down to a mountain outside of Jerusalem with Jesus standing there glorified. And he and Elijah and Jesus are going to be talking about Jesus' exodus, going to be talking about what he's going to do. Remember, he only sat down at the right hand of God after he made purification for sin. This is a week away from him being in all of his glory. Not the glorified state there on the mountain that day, but what he's about to do. God kept his promise to Moses. He saw his glory that day. Moses comes back to heaven and said, yeah, I've seen it all now. By the way, Elijah had to see it too. I don't know how Enoch missed out. I don't, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know how he missed out, but it must have been some other way. I don't know. Yes, Moses was faithful in all this, but it can't happen yet. Atonement hasn't been made. His sin, our sin, all sin, our guilt, our desire is still motivated by fear just as Israel was. Why? Because we don't believe. We simply don't believe that this God has anything else in mind for them. He says, all I want is to walk and to talk, to have face-to-face -face relationship with you. I'm not even asking for your worship yet. This is all I want to do. And they simply cannot believe that. And you really can't blame him, can you? I once heard that the gospel is barely believable. And I'm, I'm to the point where I said the gospel is not believable at all. We need him even to believe in the gospel. So back in G Hebrews 3, that's what he's saying here. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you what? If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as the rebellion on the days of the testing in the wilderness. Where your ancestors put me to the test, though they had seen my works. For how long? For 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation. And I said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. So the author loves to, the one thing about Hebrews is the author loves to midrash, 
okay? Midrash is the ancient Jewish way of studying scripture and you do it to prove your point by quoting scripture from scripture. You only use scripture as your authority. Sometimes it gets crazy. Sometimes, sometimes scripture is used way out of context, but I don't think he did so in this one. The author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 95. He says, for he is our God, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not what? Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. And I came across this uh, commentator who quotes a, an ancient midrash of about the fourth or fifth century. And it says, this was a midrash on Psalm 95. Like I said, Hebrews is doing a midrash on Psalm 95 in order to prove what he did in, in those verses. This is an ancient midrash on Psalm 95. It says, <clears throat> Rabbi Joshua ben Levi met Elijah, the Elijah, okay, and asked him, when will the Messiah come? Elijah answered, go ask him. Rabbi said, where is he? At the entrance to Rome, sitting among the lepers. So he went, greeted him, and asked, Master, when will you come? Today, he answered, today. Upon returning to Elijah, Rabbi Joshua said, he lied to me. He told me he would come today, but he has not come. Elijah replied, what he actually said to you was today if you will hear his voice. So it is with the Messiah, the rabbi says, and with all the greater poignancy. The Messiah will come today to anyone who will hear his voice and not rebel like the Israelites in the wilderness. If you hear his voice, Messiah has come for you. Yes, they rebelled. And they believed that because God pronounced a curse on him, that he was angry and I swore that they will not enter my rest. Was he, was he really? Or was it them who's trying to hear them through their guilt, their limited revelation to what they've limited their relationship to, John, to, to, to him to be? I, don't, I think that that's the, the answer because the, the letter goes on saying, take care, brothers and sisters, that none of you may have an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Evil, sin, no, unbelief. Unbelief. Unbelief in what? Look what he says in the next verse. For we've become partners of Christ if only we hold our first confidence to the end. First confidence. God acts. Christ's faithfulness in all the house is all we need. That's what we as Israel is to not harden our heart against. See, when the tabernacle was completed, just before Moses assembles it for the first time, God asked Moses to do this. He says this. He says, you then bring who? Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, wash them with water, put on Aaron the sacred vestments, and you shall anoint him and consecrate him so that he may serve me as what? As priest. Wait, what? Whoa, whoa. The instigator of the golden calf? That's still on? <laughs> he still gets to be the first high priest? Do the people that are called to not harden their hearts, do they remember that? See, the psalmist or somebody could say God was angry with them and that's why he didn't let them enter into their rest. But he takes the very instigator and puts him in the tent of meeting and makes him the very first high priest. What we hear, what we think should all be filtered to the ears, the heart, and the soul of the Son. Because we've been shown the Son and our faithful high priest. Christ, however, was faithful over God's house as a what? As a son. And we are his house if we hold firm the confidence and the pride that belong to hope. See, in Mark 14, when he was in Gethsemane, he says that. He says, Abba, Father, 
For you, all things are what? Are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, not what I want, but what? See, Abba, Father, is an endearing term. It's one of intimacy and joy. It's one to turn to at all times, this intimacy. The term crying is one for a loud or earnest cry. We do not drum up childlike love. The spirit in us cries out to God, an intimate union. No one would ever address God as Father. It would be disrespectful. Until Jesus, it just wasn't done. It took the fullness of the high priest, the faithfulness of this high priest. It took the fullness of the time to come as a son to show us who the Father really is. He's God's last day's radiance. Jesus is his exact radiance and glory. He was with them in the wilderness. The time wasn't right yet. Moses was completely faithful, but it just wasn't enough. It just wasn't enough until Jesus came. He is everything that we need. Don't settle for anything less. See, I have no problem teaching through the sanctuary. I have no problem teaching and getting lessons uh, from the Hebrew scriptures, from the former Old Testament. The problem I have is sometimes we teach it as if Jesus never came. We still teach it that God actually is angry and punishes people for their sins. When Jesus has proved to us over and over that that isn't true. We teach the, the sanctuary as if we need to be taught in order to come to Jesus. No, we need to uh, look through our faithful high priest and have him walk us through the sanctuary again. We spend too much time in the elemental things. By the way, the author of Hebrews is gonna give us one entire sermon on that. <laughs> he, says, he says, you guys should be way beyond this. Okay, let's spend some time in there. He is the radiance, the everlasting of the Father. Thanks for holding on. He is our faithful high priest. That's now going to open up pretty much all the way to almost up until chapter 11, I think, 11 or 12. The high priest, the tabernacle, the author of Hebrews is going to let us dissect it, take it apart, but look and see that it is all completely fulfilled because of that high priest. Not just a high priest, but a son. A son. Who amongst the angels, who amongst the prophets did he ever call him his son? God's last day radiance. Thanks for holding on again.